It has been uh, an interesting set of circumstances that Tracy and I have found ourselves in over the last three months. Uh, certainly, we fully expected to be in China at this point, um, trying to navigate our new surroundings and learning how to eat with chopsticks. Uh, we did not expect to be in the U.S. still, and we, we certainly didn't expect for our house to sell as quickly as it did. We praise God for that, and we're very thankful for that. We're thankful for the way he has provided for us. We're thankful that uh, my parents have allowed us to stay with them for the last three months. Uh, we are trying very hard right now to be gracious guests there. So after all, Ben Franklin famously said that guests, like fish, begin to smell after three days. We are doing our best to not smell too bad. Um, it's an interesting thing, though, when you are living in someone else's place, when you are getting used to the rhythms of someone else's day-to-day -day activity. Uh, one interesting thing that I notice is my parents very much enjoy to different things than we do. Tr Tracy and I um, are not huge TV watchers, um, but if we do watch TV, it's either typically sports or Netflix. It's either Michigan State Spartans or a rerun of Threat Level Midnight. My folks, on the other hand, have HGTV permanently programmed into the TV. I have tried to figure out how to change the channel, but I, I can't seem to make it stick. It's either Fixer Upper or Property Brothers or Flip or Flop. Now, I, 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 I know better than to come down hard on Fixer Upper. I mean, I know Chip and Joanna are the evangelical darlings of HGTV. Um, and, and I must admit, I have found some of their work pretty interesting. They take old, dilapidated homes and they fix them up into something that someone would desire to, to dwell in, something new and attractive. And, and there's probably even some sort of sanctification illustration in there, but that is not at all where I'm headed here. One of the things I've noticed on most of these shows is there is often crazy home buyers. These home buyers, um, and it's not every one of them, but most of them shouldn't be in front of a camera. Um, their budgets are enormous and ridiculous. Their demands and expectations are insane. And they want it all, and they want it right now. Uh, there is a priority placed on comfort and preferences and luxury. They are, in a lot of cases, even... Um, erecting a monument to their own perceived success or importance. Um, they have unquenchable desires, and some of them throw a fit if those desires aren't satisfied. Their priorities are on themselves, and it can be particularly ugly at times. Now, people can easily slip into this mode. We can easily slip into this mode. Right? We are not immune to this. John Calvin accurately pointed out that our hearts are idle factories. That is, easy for us to prioritize the creation over the creator. This is what we see happening here in the book of Haggai. God's people turned away from worshiping him and they have instead prioritized themselves and their possessions over the Lord. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. There it says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, of, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while his house lies in in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Have you sown much and harvested little? You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you have never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of our God. Hear it and believe. This is a difficult rebuke from the Lord. This is a rebuke from God to his covenant people. And it addresses their inaction and their indifference toward him. God is a good God. God is a just God. God is a jealous God. And he is a God who demands worship from his people. For Israel, it is their absolute duty to worship him. He has given them life-saving grace. And the only reasonable response to this grace is to worship this good God. Like God's people after the exile, God has called you also to consider your ways. Consider how it is you have lived before him. And he compels you to respond in grace-filled, spirit-filled obedience. So first, verses 1 through 4, here we see they are called to consider your complacency. Consider your complacency. Israel has demonstrated horrible complacency toward God. In order to to fully understand this, let's back up and take a look at where we are in redemptive history. So if you were with us in this fall in our adult Sunday school class, you remember we taught through um, kind of a meta-narrative of the Bible. We traced the theme of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation. And Uh, It spans the entire book. We define the kingdom using Graham Goldsworthy's definition as God's people in God's place under God's rule and enjoying his blessing. So God's people in God's place under God's rule and enjoying his blessing. We see this theme traced throughout the whole entire Bible. So where are we now? Well, we see um, we are looking at Israel in a post-exile state, but a pre-Messiah Right? We are in the Old Covenant. It is after they have returned from Babylon. They have re, um, permitted them to return home to Jerusalem, and they are reestablishing their city. Um, here, the time frame is very specific. Right, It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. All right, So this places us in 520 B.C. This is post-exile, but it is pre-Messiah. So let's think for a minute exactly Um, what significance that that had for the people. Israel was God's chosen people, right? So through Abraham, God promised to bless the whole world, and he promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And God did mighty works to prove this to him. He, He saved his people from Egypt, and he drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. He fought for them with Joshua as they conquered and possessed the Promised Land. He established the Davidic kingdom, and under David and his son Solomon, we saw great prosperity. We saw uh, them become a world power. We saw uh, unprecedented wealth flowing into Israel. Israel was the top dog, and they loved where God had placed them. However, 
They had sinful hearts. And due to their sin, due to their own sin, God disciplined them and he sent them into captivity in Babylon. And now what remains of the nation finds themselves back in Jerusalem and they are waiting for the Messiah, right? The promised coming king who will... um, they believe, again, once lead them to international dominance. They are waiting for this deliverer. It is, it is post-exile. It is pre-Messiah. But God's people here are the remnant of Judah, gathered in God's place, Jerusalem. And, and furthermore, we see God's established leaders governing his people. Um, here in verse 1, we see that clearly as Haggai, the prophet, approaches Zerubbabel, the kingly governor of Judah, and Joshua, the priest. The people are in God's place, Uh, God's people are in God's place, and they are governed uh, by God's rule. After years of exile, God has graciously brought them back. They have come home and rebuilt the wall, right? So you read about that in Nehemiah. They have rebuilt the wall. They have laid the foundations for the temple. We see that in Ezra. They have laid the foundations for the temple, but the work has stalled. Why is this? Why has the temple not been completed was it because the temple was unimportant? Was it not important to, that, to, to them? Certainly, this, this couldn't be the case. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of God's commands regarding the worship of him. The, the temple was incredibly important to the worship of God, to the people of Israel. It is how and where the sin of the people was atoned for. It was the very dwelling place of God with the people. Psalm 11 says, "'The Lord is in his holy temple.'" The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The temple should be no less important for them now as it was under the rule of King David. All right, so why then has the work stalled? Why has it stalled for them? We clearly see it was not a resource problem or a physical constraint. They were building their own homes. But it was a priority problem. It was a heart problem. Starting in verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the work of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while our house lies in ruins? While this house lies in ruins? God's people have returned, and rather than placing a priority on building the temple and, and properly worshiping God according to what God's word has directed, They have become complacent in spiritual matters. They have become apathetic in spiritual matters. They have instead decided to indulge themselves and their own desires. They have have, uh, not rebuilt the temple properly, but they have built up comfortable dwellings for themselves. God's temple was neglected. And by proxy, God himself was neither feared nor worshipped. Right? They were neglecting his temple, and that shows their heart condition and their their uh, posture toward the Lord. When we misplace our priorities, when we neither fear nor worship God, but invest our time, talents, money, energy, and efforts into other things, we express the true desires of our hearts. It was true of Israel. It is no less true today. The people of Israel have neglected the holy temple, and God calls them on it. They have prioritized the gifts over the giver of those gifts. 
in their ingratitude. They want to enjoy the kindness of God. And at the same time, they are disregarding the biggest memorial of that kindness to them. They are disregarding the temple entirely. This has immediate application for us today. Right? We are not God's old covenant people. We are not called to go worship in a temple. We are not called to slaughter an animal. We are God's new covenant people who have been redeemed by Christ. And and rather than a temple, our very bodies are the temple where the Spirit resides. We worship Him according to what He has commanded. And when He is not worshipped in this manner, when He is neglected, when He is pushed to the side, when He is passed over so we can indulge in our own desires, we do nothing different than what the Jews have done in this passage. We neglect our duty to our Creator. We show that we neither fear nor worship God. I want to be very clear at this point. It is very easy for us to point the finger at other people. It is easy for us to look and say, look at so-and-so. They have massively misplaced priorities, and they neither fear nor worship God with their lives. And, and while that might be true, I want us to take a look at ourselves. This is for us. This is for you. How are you worshiping God? Consider your areas of apathy and complacency. We all have them. Maybe a better question is this. What would others say about you? What would your friends say? What would your coworkers say? What would your neighbors say? Do they look at you and see your faith reflected in your priorities, in the things that you hold important? Do they see you as a little different, weird, and distinct from the, the way of the world? Or do they just see a cleaned up version of the world? Do they see someone who doesn't swear and doesn't get drunk on the weekends and, and doesn't live with their boyfriend or girlfriend, but everything else shows that their priorities are misplaced? What would outsiders say about you and your priorities? Do they see that you worship God every day? Or is that just something that you go to on Sunday? Or when it's convenient? What would others say? Are you living according to the New Testament commandments? Let's go, let's go to the Word and, and see how God expects His new covenant people to worship Him. Hebrews 10, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, how are you doing at this? Right? Are you holding fast, unwavering? Are you actively stirring up one another to love and good works? Is that, is that part of your weekly agenda? Are you, are you neglecting meeting together with the body of Christ? Is, is Sunday a, a priority? Or is it just something that you fit in if it's convenient? convenient? What about gathering together to pray? Is, is our prayer service a priority in your schedule? We are commanded to pray together. We are commanded to have close-knit fellowship together. We are commanded to love one another, stir up one another to love and good works. We can't do that if we're not present with one another. It's how we are to worship the Lord. Another commandment, Matthew 5, our Lord says the following, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good 
and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? How are you doing here? Are you praying for your enemies? We see Christ himself command this. Pray for your enemies. Do you love those who persecute you? Do you show love for those who disagree with you? Do you show uh, love for those who don't see eye to eye with you? Does your interaction reflect that love or does it just reflect disgust? Does it reflect care for them or does it reflect care for yourself being known as right? It matters to God how we act and how we pray for our enemies. That is something that is expected of a Christ follower. Maybe look at another, another passage that's more all-encompassing. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right, how are you doing? How does that hold up to scrutiny here? Have you presented yourself as a living sacrifice? Have you laid down your life and, and, and your desires and grabbed hold of what he desires for us? Have you died to yourself, taken up your cross and followed him? This is a reasonable response for someone who has been shown much grace and much love. It, it might be easy to grade your own complacency on a curve citing your own stellar church attendance or your um, community group involvement. Both of those things are incredibly important. And, and if you're not involved in those, that, that might be an indication of where your heart is. But it is not the totality of your walk with God. Examine your own heart. In what ways have you grown apathetic, placing your own desires above the things of God? Do you tightly guard your personal time and hoard it so much that you ha are unable to show hospitality and love to others? Do you care so much about what other people think about you that you're unwilling to share the gospel with them? Do you prioritize even good things above the, the one and perfect great thing? Things like family, uh, above, uh, above the Lord to the point where you're disengaged from the church. Consider your complacency. Lay that before the Lord today. He alone is the one that is to be feared and to be worshipped. The prophet Haggai delivers this message to his people, rebuking them for their complacency. He then goes on to describe the results of their actions. He asks them to consider your condition. Verses 5 through 6, consider your condition. It says there, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have shown, sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. All right, God here calls attention to the outcome of their misplaced priorities. They have indulged themselves, preferring to pay special attention to their own dwelling while neglecting the true worship of God as the temple lies unfinished. And what has it gained them in the end? Right? They have sown much, but they've harvested little. They didn't reap what they expected. They have not yielded the crop they thought they were going to rake in. 
They eat and they drink and they are never satisfied. They place their money in their pockets and immediately it is gone. They, they do not have enough. They are never full. Simply put, they lack, right? They lack money, they lack food, they lack crops, they lack warmth, they lack comfort. God's warning in his word has not been enough and now he is getting their attention by hitting them where it hurts, right? In their pocketbook. Everything that they have prioritized have less, has left them feeling empty. This is the way of idolatry, is it not? This is what happens when we place a false savior, a false priority at the center of our life. When you prioritize something, even something good, over the Lord, you will always wind up feeling empty. We will always worship something. That is what we do. And idols, they will never satisfy the late author David Foster Wallace accurately diagnosed this problem at, uh, as he gave a graduation speech at Kenyon College in 2005. Wallace, a man who was an unbeliever, not a Christian, and battled lifetime of depression, he astutely recognized our collective need as people to worship something. As Christians, we recognize this is how God created us, to worship him. Wallace here says, and I think this is helpful, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths or pro proverbs or cliches or bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up uh, front in daily consciousness. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Consider this coming from an unbeliever. This is coming from an unbeliever, recognizing our sinful state here. He is a person wise enough to recognize this human condition. We worship something. You all worship something. When we worship the wrong thing, we come up empty. God is telling here the Israelites this explicitly. When you prioritize yourself and your time and your talents, and your, your, your goods over the worship of me, you're holding up an idol that cannot deliver. Like Jim Harbaugh in any big game, idols always come up short. Doug's not here, and I can say whatever I want. <laughs> idols do not satisfy. Consider the condition that idols leave you in. There is not enough. You are unsatisfied because the one, the only one that can bring true and lasting peace 
is neither feared nor worshipped. We are to make a beeline for Christ because he is the only one that can satisfy. Our Lord says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is the one who can give us living water so that we will never be thirsty again. Jesus is the one who can provide for all of your needs. He will never leave you end up feeling empty or alone. Run to him. He never comes up short. He always delivers on his promise. I was reminded this morning from a friend, he gives us a good gift. He not only gave us himself, but he gives us the church to love us. Run to him. Dwell with him. Place yourself into the life of his people. Let him become your priority. Consider your condition. The one who can change this is the only one that you need. Have you placed him first? Or is there still a false savior in his place? Has comfort overtaken your desire to worship and serve him? Has entertainment? Has something crept into the top priority list for your week and displaced Christ as the true object of your affection? Consider your complacency and then consider the condition that it leaves you in. Third, consider your choices. Consider your choices. Verse, verses 7 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. All right, so, so here again, God repeats the phrase, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider the choices that you have made before him. You can either serve him or you can serve yourselves. You cannot do both. He gives them instructions here then to gather supplies and build the temple so that he can be glorified. This is in stark contrast to what they have been doing with their lives thus far. They have been building their own homes and prioritizing their own comfort over the priority of worshiping the true and living God. They have, they have neglected the worship of this God and have been instead worshiping themselves, as it were, and, and their families and their possession and their time. Friends, God will not be mocked. He will not play second fiddle for you. He desires and demands that his creation worships him. And he has given them a manual on how to do it. He has given his very words, and these are to be taken seriously. He talks to them. They have a choice. Turn and repent and get to worshiping and serving the Lord. Or continue down a path of ruin. One, that leads to ever, one way leads to everlasting life and joy and fellowship with him. And the other way leads down a path to everlasting destruction in a real place called hell. Here we, we see him call for a temporal 
judgment, temporal destruction in verses 10 and 11. He, he withholds dew and withholds produce and delivers a drought on the land. This is temporal judgment that is foreshadowing a greater judgment to come should they not turn in faith to him. Consider your ways, he tells them. Consider your choices. And we should read this, and this should hit us between the eyes. Consider this for a minute. What if, what if God came to you and he audibly said to you something like, my son, my daughter, consider your ways. Look at what you have been doing with your time. Look at what you have been doing with the resources that I have freely given to you. Look at how you prioritized your activities this week. You have time for X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. You always seem to have enough time and money and enthusiasm for these other activities. But you have not worshipped me in spirit and in truth. You have not offered yourself as a living sacrifice. You do not pray for your enemies. You have neglected fellowship with the body of Christ. And you do little to spur others on to love and good works. You call yourself my child, but your life shows little to no evidence of this. Consider your ways. Consider your choices. Turn, repent, come back. If, if the Lord comes to you and he says that audibly to you, what would your response be? How would this affect your participation in the life of the church? Would it make you think differently about gathering weekly for corporate worship or corporate prayer or small groups? How would this affect your interactions with one another? How would this affect the way that you speak to other people, both in person or hostily online? How would it affect the time and priority you give to hobbies or sports or entertainment at the expense of gathering with God's people? Now, friends, God is not silent. He has spoken. He has given us this words, these words. He has, he has asked his people to consider the choices that they make. This is massively important for us today. We are not old covenant Israel who is neglecting the physical temple we are new covenant Israel neglecting the spiritual realities in front of our face. Consider your ways. Consider your choices. Thankfully, finally, we here have a section where we are to consider your cure. Verses 12 through 15. Consider your cure. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. All right, what do we see here? What is the response of the people? Do they continue to misplace their priorities, choosing their own time and possessions over, over the work um, of the temple, of the work that God has commanded? Or do they turn in repentance and obedience, right? Collectively, they turned. 
They turned away from the path of destruction and turned back to God in faith. This is a beautiful picture of repentance. Now, how do we know that Israel, Israel truly repented of their sin at this point rather than merely feeling bad about what they had done and, then, and the condition that their sin had found them in? There's two ways. So, so first, their sin had be, been, become displeasing to them. It says that they feared the Lord. They cared for what the Lord had to say and they sided with him rather than longing for their sin. It is the same with us. True repentance is not feeling bad about the consequence of your sin, but the sin becomes displeasing to us because we fear the Lord. Secondly, we see obedience follows, right? True repentance always births obedience. True repentance always births obedience. If there is no obedience following the declaration of repentance, there is no true repentance to be had. First John makes this clear. It says, and, we, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. True faith, true repentance always leads to true action. If there is no actions following, chances are there was no true repentance. Here we see Israel turn in repentance and they take action in faith. They turn away from their sin and they get busy with the kingdom work. Obedience demonstrates faith. It is not ever the foundation of our right standing with God, but it is a true and necessary demonstration of true faith. Without obedience, we can say that we have faith, but our actions deny our very words. It's like I come to you and say, I hate cheeseburgers, and I have a quarter pounder hanging out of my mouth. Right? Like, like that doesn't make sense. Your actions show your words to be hollow and meaningless and untrue. True faith is always accompanied by and demonstrated by obedience. It is necessary. Not as the grounds for our salvation, but as a result of it. It is, it is true of you and I, and it was true of them, as we see the temple in ruins and, begin, and they begin to work. They finally are seeking first the kingdom of God and they are acting in faith. They begin construction of the temple. And what is the result? What do we see here? Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. They turn in faith to God, and he declares, I am with you. They have been sinful for years. They have indulged themselves. They have looked to themselves and their own sin, and God doesn't, he, he doesn't reject them, but he calls them back to himself. And then he declares, I am with you. What grace from our God. God is faithful to his covenant promise. Israel turns to him, trusting in his promise. And the Lord mercifully blesses them by declaring that he is on their side. The remnant of his people is restored to a right relationship with him. The cure for Israel was turning from their sin and repentance and trusting in the promises of God by faith. Friends, it is no different for us today. We have sinned. You have sinned. You have, we have become complacent. We have found ourselves in miserable condition. We have made sinful choices. We have turned away from our Creator and selfishly pursued various idols, whether that be comfort, luxury, lust, greed, power, fill in the blank. Even good things, right? 
family, friends, security. We have placed them above the only one worthy of worship, and we find ourselves in the exact same position as Israel, and this is damning. But just as God sent his word to his people through a prophet, Haggai, God has sent his word to his people through the prophet, Jesus Christ. Just as Zerubbabel, a kingly ruler of Judah, led God's people in obedience to his commands, Jesus, the king, has led his people in perfect obedience to the law. And just as Joshua, a high priest, could once again make proper and repeated atonement for the sin of the people, Jesus, the high priest, has made atonement by his blood once and for all. He lived a perfect life that we could not live under the law. He pursued, nev- never pursued selfish ambitions, but he freely gave of everything that he had. He died taking God's wrath on the cross so that all who would turn from their sin in repentance and trust in him by faith would be restored to the creator. They have the right to become the children of God. This is the cure that we have to consider. Consider your ways and consider this cure. Our Heavenly Father is kind and gracious. Even in his discipline, he is merciful. The people were taken into exile because of their sin, yet the Lord preserved a remnant of that people to come back. He pulled them back to him. He enjoyed fellowship once again with them. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is calling us to consider our ways, to look at our own lives and actions and turn to him in repentance and faith, to lay down our desires and present ourselves as a living sacrifice, a reasonable reasonable response to the grace that he has shown us. Consider this today as we bow before our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, indeed, you are not silent, but you have spoken loudly and you have spoken mightily through your word. Lord, we reflect this morning on our complacency, our condition, and our choices. We recognize our sinfulness before you and ask for your forgiveness. More than that, Lord, we know that this forgiveness, this cure, comes only by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you have done through him, and we ask that you empower us to go forward and sin no more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.